study and teach in themes. And so it's not uncommon for me to take a, a theme in the teachings and and really work with it more and more deeply over these years with study, with my own practice, and sharing some reflections on it. And so I thought I would share tonight one of my main themes of teaching and study and practice this year, which is the seven factors of enlightenment. I've been very, very interested this year in some of the the teachings that point directly to liberation and how we tap into them here and now. So we'll start by rewinding to the time of the Buddha. We'll start at the beginning, one of the early teachings of these seven factors of awakening. And so in this particular story, uh, the Buddha was living in Rajgir. And he had a whole bunch of practitioners with him. So he had a bunch of students. And there was this one monastic practitioner, and his name was Mahakasapa, the Venerable Mahakasapa. And at one point, the Venerable Mahakasapa got sick. He got really sick, and it lingered. And it was the bowels which really uh, isn't a surprise uh, given ancient India, uh, given modern India sometimes, not always. So it was an illness in the bowels, and he was quite ill. He couldn't meditate. He was laying in bed and really feeling down. And the Buddha heard about it, and he went to go see him to pay an illness visit. And this is what he said to Mahakasapa. He said, well, Kasapa, how is it with you? Are you bearing up? Are you enduring? Do your pains lessen or increase? Are the signs of your pains lessening or increasing? So how are you? Tell me what's going on. And I just imagine the venerable Mahakasapa kind of pulling himself together in the face of the Buddha, and he was not doing well. And he said, you know, Buddha, I am not bearing up. I am not enduring. The pain is very great. There's a sign of the pains not lessening, but they're increasing. So there they were in this moment of distress in the body. We have all had moments of distress in the body, illness, injury, just not feeling well, and it lingering and it increasing. And so what did the Buddha say? What healing, what medicine did he offer? This is what he offered. He said, Mahakasapa, these seven factors of enlightenment are well expanded by me. They've been cultivated by me. I've developed them. And when they're developed, they're conducive to full awakening. What are the seven? Mindfulness, Mahakasapa. Mindfulness is one of the seven. Investigation is one of the seven. Energy. Joy or rapture is one of the seven. Tranquility. Concentration. Equanimity. These are the seven that lead to full awakening. And In this teaching that the Buddha gave to Mahakasapa to buoy his spirits, to bring the resiliency of his mind forward, to meet this physical ailment, as the story goes, Venerable Mahakasapa was cured of his illness, continued his practice, and reached full awakening, the end. (laughs) So... We need to hold, I think, this story in the model of the two truths, the universal truth, the possibility that faith can be so strong that actually healing can arise in the mind or in the body, 
but that also Mahakasapa was being well taken care of by his community at that time on a practical, on-the-ground level. There's another sutta from the Buddha where uh, there was a sick monk and everybody was too busy meditating to take care of their family member. You know, have you ever had that happen? Your kid's pulling on your leg and you go, you know, I'm meditating right now. Or the phone call from somebody, I'm busy meditating. And the Buddha said, no, no, that's not it. Taking care of our families, our communities on a practical, on-the-ground level is the practice. Now, so I'm sure Venerable Mahakasapa was receiving good care at the same time. So in terms of the seven factors teaching, uh, you know, just kind of the recollection that we're all sick. We're not just sick and well and sick and well with the body, but we also have the illness of the mind, right? And the basic illness is that we struggle. We're always trying to become what we can't quite become, trying to control things to make everything go the way that we would like. There's the parts that we leave out and hope that nobody will see that we are. It's kind of basic confusion about uh, ourselves and the world and the role that we play in this universe. And whenever struggles associated with these things, you feel kind of sick at heart. You ever felt that way? Certainly have. It's like things are just out of sync. Just sick at heart with that. So a traditional way of talking about that might be sick with the fires of craving, with aversion, with confusion. Um, But we remember through teachings like this, all these awakening teachings, that we're more than the illness. We're more than the struggle. And so when I was reflecting on what I might want to share with you tonight, I actually thought back to my very early years at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. So I started meditating when I was 17 years old. I was sick at heart. I was sick in body. I was actually working with chronic pain at the time. And I showed up to Spirit Rock at age 18 and basically didn't leave for about 20 years. I found a home. And so I remember Jack Cornfield, you know, really young. I was 18, 19, 22. And he has these sayings that he says that, you know, he still says them. I think of them as like, you know, little Buddhist bedtime sayings. You know, they they nurture the heart. They kind of remind us what's really true. And he's got a whole bunch of them. And one of them was this. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, do not forget who you really are. How many of you have heard Jack say that on a recording or in person? I'm just curious. Yeah, a handful of hands. A nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, do not forget who you really are. And we get buoyed by that. It's like the struggle falls away. We realize that even though maybe we're still a mess, there's something more. These factors of awakening. The enlightenment factors are available to us. They're available to us in ordinary ways and extraordinary ways. I say the word investigation. We all know what that means. Concentration. We've all developed concentration in some way or another in our lives or in our meditation practice. And there's always more. And that's the good news. So, move through these seven factors and In a way, I'm going to be talking about them more in their ordinary manifestations because here we are in our ordinary lives. But the way that I hold the model of this teaching 
is a model of we tap into these awakening qualities in their ordinary aspects. If they're user-friendly, then we don't put them aside for when we have more time or energy to cultivate something. We say, ah, I can plug in now. And then they start to grow in wisdom and experience and tools and understanding, and they become extraordinary in their awakening qualities. But that's not the end. We start with ordinary, we arc at extraordinary, and then we actually digest and integrate what we've understood about awakening in our own being and manifest it in ordinary ways again. And so I'm going to tell some stories about extraordinary, ordinary people that uh, even though they aren't Dharma practitioners and they're certainly not enlightened, I think this process applies. So we'll start with mindfulness. One of the ways we can hold the seven factors is the image of a teeter-totter. So on the teeter-totter, there are energizing factors, and the energizing factors are investigation and energy and joy. And there are calming factors, which are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So they're teeter-totter, teeter-totter. We need a fulcrum. Mindfulness is that fulcrum. When mindfulness lights up and becomes more and more mature, these other qualities light up and become more and more mature. There's a quote from a commentary to the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta. It says, Mindfulness, friends, I declare, is essential in all things everywhere. It is as salt is to the curry. So what is it, especially if you're new? There's a quality of intention to it. There's a quality of present moment attention, or attention that lands here rather than there, or here rather than past or future. There's an attitude to it of friendliness, non-judgmentalness. And one of the translations of the Pali word for mindfulness, which is sati, is to recollect. And I like that because it's like, oh, recollect. We're recollecting the attention, and we're recollecting that we want to pay attention. I often say it's not that hard to be mindful, but it's really hard to remember to be mindful. So this recollect, we're going to recollect that this is important to us. So there's yet another sutta about how these energizing factors and calming factors work. And so this is from the Buddha, and it says, When the mind is sluggish, it's the wrong time to cultivate the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Because a sluggish mind is hard to arouse through these factors. Now, if we're feeling sluggish, then we say, oh, maybe I just need to calm down. It gets dreamy. Oh, this is nice meditation. I'm not stressed out, but we're not present either. So that's that's the quote-unquote the wrong time. And then he says, friends, when the mind is agitated, that would be an inappropriate time to cultivate the enlightenment factors of investigation, energy, or rapture. Why? An agitated mind is hard to calm through these factors. Let's say we're in an obsessive planning mind, and we think, ah, I'm going to investigate that planning. And it just amps the whole thing up. Whereas maybe if we said, ah, could I have some equanimity with that planning or bring in some more concentration, that might be helpful. What I'm talking about is the art of meditation. 
There's plenty of teachings about meditation, but in the end, only we can know what's skillful in the moment. So, mindfulness. Interesting that even though there's an appropriate and inappropriate time for the arousing and calming factors, the punchline of the sutta is this. As for mindfulness, friends, I declare it's always useful. That's bold. I always track when the words always or never are used because they're a little dangerous. But, you know, we could check and see for ourselves. Is it always useful? So mindfulness, then we have the energizing factor of investigation. Use some different words in case the word investigation doesn't land for you. You could also talk about it as discernment or curiosity. And it's an investigation of states, both inner and outer. So in a way, we're being curious about the process more than we're being curious about the content. So I'll give you a really practical example. I was working with somebody recently, and they were practicing mindfulness with anger. They were really angry, and it was about something. It was actually about someone. So the something or the someone is the content. You know, it's the object. And the anger happening is the process. Well, you know how it is when we get highly charged, afflictive emotions. We just suck into the object. It's all about them and how I'm right and they're wrong and rehearsing and rehashing and making it all work out in our own mind perfectly, right? So that's what this person was doing. And I looked at that person and made a simple comment that any of you that's ever been on retreat has probably had some teacher say to you. I said, huh, anger's happening. And they paused and, you know, kind of who knows what was going on in their head at that moment. And they said, yeah. And in that moment, they felt their chest kind of like getting really hot and heavy and collapsed. And it was like, yeah. And all of a sudden we moved into the process of anger. We jumped out of the system of the content of anger and moved into the spaciousness of the process of anger and investigated it and got curious about it and actually learned quite a bit about that root of anger that had gotten glued onto a situation that any one of you would have agreed was a cause for anger. Very interesting, helpful quality investigation. Then we have energy. So... Energy is the mental quality that fuels wise effort. Other words are vigor or perseverance, persistence. So it's specific energy. It's directed towards supporting the cultivation of helpful, wholesome states and the transformation and abandoning of unhelpful states. So instead of talking about it theoretically, I'm going to tell a story that illustrates it. It's a story about somebody I've never met, but that I respect very much. And her name is Pearl Arandando. And Pearl lives in East L.A., and she grew up in East L.A. And her family situation was that her father was in the leadership of one of the local gangs there. And so he was in and out of prison. Her mother was at home and was sounded like she was really the rock of the family. And the school that Pearl grew up in was, um, you know, not exactly a safe place to be, and education wasn't always the priority in this school. 
And so by the time she got to middle school, no surprise, due to causes and conditions, she was getting in some trouble. She'd gotten involved with the wrong crowd. Okay? So the unwholesome starting to arise. And, and the unwholesome's being impacted by the conditions of you know, where she lived and what she was dealing with. And then she started to make choices that weren't so helpful for her. So the unwholesome starting to rise. You can see how it works internally and externally. Her mother made a hard decision. And the decision was to put her on a bus every day and bus her to what her mother perceived was a better school. Now, this was an interesting choice point for Pearl because, you know, her mother couldn't exactly drag her onto the bus at the age that she was. Pearl had to make a choice. Was she going to stay in a situation that wasn't very safe and that was clearly going in a direction that she probably didn't want to manifest in adulthood? And she's a young woman. Can she see this? In fact, she could see this. And she redirected. She used her energy uh, mentally and physically physically to get on the bus and mentally to make a shift and say, okay, I'm going to go meet a new community and try this out, and got on that bus and went to another school. Nobody ever thought that she would graduate from that high school. There was still plenty of opportunities to move into the unwholesome. There's always plenty of opportunities for us to move into the unwholesome. But indeed, she did graduate from high school. And even more amazing, she went to college, and she was the first person in her family to go to college. And no one ever thought she would graduate from college. But in fact, she did. And so you can see how the wholesome is starting to be cultivated and maintained. And then she had a choice point. Was she, gonna, uh, she decided to get a teaching credential, which she did. And then the choice point was, do, uh, does she go work in some nice suburban school somewhere? Or does she go back home? She decided to go back home. And she went to the very same middle school that almost made her life go in a direction where we don't know where she would have ended up. And she started teaching there. And when she saw the conditions from an adult perspective, she was so moved by the fact that there wasn't enough support for the wholesome to arise that she actually started a charter school. It was a charter school to teach youth in East L.A. uh, media skills, emotional development, and, you know, really small, really supportive school. First one of its kind in East L.A. That's how wise effort fueled by energy works internally and externally in a life. And you see how when the energy is uninhibited to flower in a more awakened way, you know, granted, not full enlightenment, but awakened way, the world starts to change. How many lives has she already changed through changing her own? It's a great story. So we have investigation, we have energy, we have joy. Other words for joy, rapture, happiness. And I feel so humbled sitting here, you know, in James's, James's sitting group. It's like, what could I possibly say about joy, right? You've heard it all. You've practiced it all. It's totally awakened you, right? I mean, this would be the enlightenment field of joy here. You know, it's, it's okay if you're not feeling it tonight. <laughs> Uh, so I thought I would bring in something unusual because James has covered so much. So when we're talking about joy or rapture as an enlightenment quality, it's an enlightenment quality of mind and of body. Bliss would be another word for it. And so I started looking into the commentaries. 
And here are two uh, interesting ways to cultivate the enlightenment factor of rapture that I bet you haven't heard. Maybe one or two of you have. So number one, the avoiding of unskillful people cultivates the awakening quality of joy. That'll make your mind turn. The avoiding of unskillful people. So what does it mean? Is the keeping away from rough people who are like dirt on a mule's back, who show a callous nature through irreverence. So I deliberately kept the kind of old English translation there because I feel like it moves our minds out of the box. And so then we might see something fresh or new. Keeping away from rough people who show a callous nature through irreverence. So this really ties in with the energy. When we're around people who are constantly unskillful, unfortunately, that's contagious, and it drags us down, and the joy might not be so available. The bliss body might not be so available. The good news, of course, is number two. Another way to cultivate joy or rapture, hang around skillful people. Are those who have confidence in the Buddha or in awakening and are gentle of mind. Confidence and awakening and are gentle of mind. So everything's contagious. When we're too much around the unskillful, that's contagious. When we're really around the skillful, it brings up tremendous joy. Which is, I'm sure, why when the Buddha's cousin Ananda went to the Buddha in that famous example and said something like, um, you know, cousin, cousin, I've heard that um, wise friends on the spiritual path are half of the holy life, right? And that amazing moment where the Buddha just like so firmly comes out and says to Ananda, not so, not so. Always imagine, what was the resonance in Ananda hearing the Buddha say, you're wrong. (laughs) And he said, you know, wise friends are the whole of the holy life. So it's like this moment of tension and then total release into joy right there in that conversation between family members. They're family members, actually. So I was thinking about my friend and colleague, Anushka. Uh, She teaches in San Francisco and at Spirit Rock. And she has this great practice that I really respect. I think it goes along with this. She says, I try to hang out with those better than myself. I try to hang out with those better than myself. Now, comparing mind aside, that's quite a statement from a woman and a Dharma teacher that has some of the most beautiful integrity of anybody that I know. And yet she's always on the lookout for those that are more awake, you know, less hindered, more joyful than herself. Because she knows it's contagious. Brings out the best in her. So we have investigation and energy and joy as the energizing factors. Now we'll calm, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So tranquility, other words, serenity, calm, relaxation. Again, it's of both body and of mind. And I brought in the same text to talk about two ways to cultivate it. The first one is the avoiding of people who are physically restless. And the commentary is the keeping away from restless people who go about harassing others with clawed and stick. (laughs) 
Okay, so we can take this literally because, you know, some of us live or work in environments where there are people who are physically restless going around harassing with clod and stick or something more dangerous than that. But there's also a metaphorical clod and stick, the one that always has to say the snide remark or whatever it is. And as an example to that, I was thinking about, maybe this has happened to you, walking into a room where there's two people or a few people, and clearly there's some sort of interpersonal conflict going on. And you walk into the room, and everybody stops talking, and the tension, you could cut it with a knife. It's like the opposite of calm and tranquil. Now, if the mind is calm and tranquil, something very different happens than if the mind is restless and self-obsessed. The mind is restless and self-obsessed, I might walk into that room, There's tension, everybody stops talking, and the restless mind produces, oh my gosh, they're mad at me. What did I do wrong? What's going on? This feels terrible. I want to flee. I can't flee. It gets so complicated so fast with the worrying, restless mind. Let's say we walk into that same room, same situation, with calm. A lot of us have experienced this internally or somebody we know. They walk into the room, and there's like this wave of calm moving out before them. You could cut the tension with a knife, but the calm meets it and infuses it. There's no extra restlessness. Reactivity doesn't arise. And that person entering the room actually changes the dynamic and starts to de-escalate it just by the presence of calm in the body and the mind. Powerful. So the avoiding of people who are physically restless and the cultivating of people who are physically calm, those who are quiet because they are restrained hand and foot. So we need to be careful with the word restrained because what we don't mean is rigid or frozen. I think what it really means is de-escalated, less reactive. So there's some restraint, some non-reactivity. Then we have concentration. Other words, single-pointed, focused. And the thing is, is if we're not focused or our focus wavers, it's really hard to harness the power of the mind. So there's a lot available here. Concentration is one of those words that we need more words for it. And I'll tell you why I think that's so. I know somebody who, when they were in their youth, trained as a skier with the U.S. Olympic team in skiing. And I know somebody who just learned how to ski last winter. Now, if you ask both of those people, are you a skier, they're going to say yes. But one trained with the Olympic team and the other one just learned last winter. It's all wonderful. But there's a huge degree of what we mean when we use this word concentration. So when somebody comes to me and they say, oh, I'm practicing concentration meditation, I say, great. What does that look like for you? Because I have no idea what they mean by that word. There are many, many trainings in concentration. If you go to a retreat, say, at Spirit Rock Meditation Center or one of our affiliated centers, and you're interested in training in concentration it's probably going to be suggested to use as an object for concentration the breath or loving kindness. 
the good news is, is that if you're one of those people like I was when I first started meditating, who the breath was about the hardest thing you could ever pay attention to. I mean, it just, it, it was not an accessible vehicle for concentration for me. There are actually 40 different concentration meditation objects. So don't despair. If you have some belief that I can't concentrate, it probably just means you're comparing it to something else, and there actually is some concentration there. It can always be increased, and there are many doorways in. And I consider this wonderful news. Then I think back to Sylvia Borstein. She was one of the first teachers that, uh, what, embarked me on the path of concentration training. And, you know, she has quite a natural aptitude for concentration. And I just remember her saying, Heather, don't worry about it too much. You know, in fact, when the mind isn't startled or angry or confused, it collects around an object naturally, automatically. It's that easy. Just go try that. I was like, oh, phew. We're so conditioned to make a project out of everything. And truthfully, concentration, training, we could call a project. But how about just going out in our lives and noticing when there's a cessation of startle, anger, and confused, isn't it easier to pay attention in a focused, sustained way? One of the reasons that it's so important for all of these enlightenment factors to work together is when I think about a lot of the leaders on our planet, past and present, I really understand that they have tremendous powers of concentration. You know, to be able to focus so deeply with a complex amount of things and and just be single-pointed with their vision to manifest it. Great leaders have that quality in an ordinary way. But without energy that fuels wise effort, what have we seen about the ways that it's been used? For good or for ill. So lastly, in the calming side, we have equanimity. Other words, unshakability, non-reactivity, balance. I'll share with you my favorite working definition of equanimity, which is the balance of an unstartled mind and heart, grounded in wisdom, that supports a deep caring and an appropriate response. So in that, we have balance, unstartled, wise, caring, and responsive. Why is that my working definition? To respond to some of the confusion that equanimity is indifferent, which it's not. Uh, Indifference is equanimity minus the caring, so it's a near miss. And also, sometimes the confusion is equanimity passive, not at all. So I'll tell you a story about non-passive equanimity. This is a story about Angela Patton. And she is the director uh, of a camp. It's called Girls for Change Camp Diva. It's in Richmond, Virginia. And this particular camp works with young women in adolescence through early adulthood from the African-American community. And so the way that the story goes was Angela and a group of girls were sitting around a table and they were talking. And the girls were playing their roles perfectly as teenage young women. The topic was their dads. 
So it's equanimity to even understand that due to causes and conditions, we play our roles perfectly. You'll see when I tell you what they were talking about. One girl says, you know, my dad never listens to me. And another girl says, yeah, you know, I feel like my dad just doesn't understand me. And another girl says, yeah, I just can't figure out how to relate to my dad. Well, you know, what is it about dads? You know, they're playing their roles perfectly according to developmental causes and conditions. So Angela was sitting there with them and she asked the girls a question. She said, how can we help girls to have more healthy relationships with their fathers? And the girls immediately lit up on this idea that might surprise you. They said, let's have a father-daughter dance. And so Angela got behind it. I imagine her thinking to herself, okay, let's follow this thread and see where it goes. And they immediately started planning the dance. What the music would be, what they would wear, what their dads would wear. Uh, the place cards at the tables, they're planning this whole dance. And there's this one girl at the table that isn't really contributing to the conversation. And at one point she speaks up. And she says, you know, my dad won't be coming to that dance. And, uh, you know, one of the other girls said, why not? And she said, my dad's in prison. And it's just like, I just imagine that pause at the table. And I wonder... What happened in Angela's mind when she heard that? You know, I'm imagining that she probably already knew that, but here is this momentum of energy moving in a direction that's going to lead to a beautiful uh, potential event, and it just got moved over here. What do we do now? What Angela did was uh, she, she paused. She actually didn't respond. And another one of the girls responded. And the girl said, what if we move the dance to jail? And Angela turned to them and said, let's do some research. Let's investigate whether this is possible. And she started doing research. She started making calls. She started working with the administration of the prison. And then she found out that there were other dads in that prison with young girls or women, you know, that, that could also be a part of the stance the dance actually happened. And this was on national news. That's how I heard about it. So beautiful, beautiful image of, you know, catered meal. Everybody was dressed to the nines. They're dancing. You could tell the girls had chosen the music. Um, (laughs) And at one point, the fathers and daughters sat down after a meal, and a recorder was handed to each father, and he recorded a message of, of love and encouragement to his daughter to listen to later when they were apart. Because the understanding of equanimity knows that just because this is a beautiful situation that has huge potential for transformation, it did not mean that those fathers were going home with their daughters that night. They were staying where they were. They had their path. And their daughters had their path. And there was tremendous caring. My favorite on-the-ground equanimity phrases these days are, I have my path, you have your path, and I care about you. So, a lot of equanimity all the way through that. And through that balance, through that wisdom, through that caring, appropriate response arose that we don't know the impact on those girls now, years later, on their families, on the work that they're doing, it ripples out. It all ripples out. 
Equanimity lights up, the other enlightenment factors light up. They all start lighting up. So, I'll end with one more story. And it's a story about Ajahn Chah. So, Ajahn Chah is my teacher's teacher and a great forest meditation master from Thailand, passed on now. In 1979, he made a rare visit to the West, and he visited Insight Meditation Society. So that's um, Spirit Rock's sister center in Barrie, Massachusetts, and that was actually the first Insight Center in this country uh, for retreats. And so he paid a visit, and it was a really big deal. Now, at that particular time, the practice that was um, being taught and explored by the community was primarily from the Burmese tradition, and it included moving really, really slowly, and the demeanor of it was pretty serious. Now, Ajahn Chah comes from the Thai force tradition, where the movement for tra- in terms of training and meditation does not need to be so slow, and, you know, he just had an incredibly light spirit, you know, a beautiful smile when he smiled, you know, very light of heart. Not that the Burmese tradition isn't light of heart. It's just the form as it was being practiced at this particular retreat looked a little serious. Those of you that have been on retreats, I'm sure you've experienced this, you've seen this. It happens. So this was a three-month meditation retreat, and Ajahn Chah came in during the middle of it. And so I can just imagine being a meditator in a three-month retreat, and here's like the head of the entire lineage that like landed in the U.S. and he's wandering around and I'm in a silent retreat. Talk about no pressure for the meditation. <laughs> you know, inspiring and probably a little unnerving. Uh, so people were out on the lawn in front doing walking meditation, really slow, lifting, moving, placing the foot, lifting, moving, placing the foot. Ajahn Chah started wandering around. You know, and, and because everyone was excited he was there, there was kind of like a, a, a group of people, I imagine them up on the steps at IMS, kind of watching him wander around in the midst of the walking meditators. And he started approaching the meditators and saying something, and kind of smiling and giggling. And, you know, what was he saying? So later when he came back up, somebody asked him, what were you saying to everybody? And he was going around to each meditator and saying this, I hope you get better soon. (laughs) You know, I hope you get better soon. And the person said, why? Why were you saying that? And he said something like, well, it it just just seemed like everyone was really serious and slow and kind of like a hospital. (laughs) Uh, So... You know, basically he was, in, he was offering them through a very sweet phrase, the, the offering, the contagiousness, the transmission of his awakening, you know, all the, his qualities of awakening. And so, you know, whether you take heart with hearing the Buddha whisper the seven factors in your ear when you're kind of needing a boost of awakening or imagining Ajahn Chah coming up to you when you're really in a struggle and saying, I hope you get better soon. You know, or even the loving kindness that we offer ourselves when we just know we're completely caught up in ourselves and just, ah, oh, you know, may you be healthy and strong. May you be protected and safe. 
um, you know, whichever one it is for you, uh, the wish at the end of this talk is, may we all be increasingly well. And always. That's what I have to offer for reflection this evening. And thank you for the kindness of your attention. And uh, hopefully one of those factors lit you up at least a little bit. And I'm curious about, you know, what your experience is with these and what your questions are. And here is the mic. couple of reflection questions since nobody is like leaping to share in front of a group of people. I can't imagine why. Um, one might be, are there one of these factors that just feel kind of natural to you? We tend to look at where it's difficult, where we need to create a project, where there's a problem. Is there one that just feels you know, easy, easeful? Maybe we could just call them out. Which one feels easier or easeful for you that you remember? Mm-hmm. Okay, energy. Investigation. We've got to say some more because all the people that already forgot what the factors are, we've got to remind them. <laughs> well, mindfulness, joy. <laughs> Tranquility is easy. Yeah. 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 So then, you know, what makes it easy? And is there somebody who'd willing, be willing to share? And it doesn't mean you need to identify as somebody who finds... Mindfulness easy all the time. It's just what's the quality of it that you just resonate with that is easy to manifest in a life if if things aren't in a crisis. Mm. Yeah, please, Travis. Um, for myself, I can say that uh, um, it's really just looking inside. Um, I feel like all of these qualities, um, they just come naturally, I think, when we look inside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that we need um, anyone to teach us how to do. Um, it's something that is very natural and that we can discover all on our own. And there's a comfort mm-hmm. in, in me uh, for that because I find myself here, but I, I may just, I, I may as well have found myself off in the woods, not around anybody else or somewhere without anybody to help show me the way. And it's comforting to know that if I look inside of myself, I can find that way to freedom 
um, just just by, by simply being. So yeah. That's what I'd like to share. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not profound. Yeah. I feel I feel like a huge part of what I do is just bring in pieces and go, remember this, remember this, and then, you know, just kind of go, oh, yeah, I do remember this. So nobly born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. What else wants to be asked or shared? Hi. Um, I always struggle with the teaching of um, not keeping company with the unwise or the unskillful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It feels not compassionate, um, separatist, it mm-hmm. just elitist, you know, all those things that you mm-hmm. say, you know, as an open-hearted, loving human being, mm-hmm. I should welcome everybody. Mm-hmm. And what about people with mental illness? They're certainly running around and causing chaos, and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people like that in, in, in my family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, I hear you. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but there's times when it gets really intense, and it's yeah. and it's it's challenging, and yeah. um, it's that spaciousness that I like. You were saying, you know, you walk in the room, and if you're holding that, then mm-hmm. it shifts everything. So, can't we be that way and still hang out with these people? And and how do they ever rise if if they can't hang out with skillful people? They're going to stay there, you know. Right, right, right. So it's just this right. kind of double edged thing. No, I so appreciate you teasing that out because it's a paradox. And I mean, you know, instead of, instead of answering it, I'm going to ruminate on it with you because I, I think you have your own answer. But, but, but absolutely, I think that's why they need to all go together because it can't just be avoid unskillful people. We also need the field of calm and enough equanimity. And, and it's certainly not... Um, I think about it more in terms of the... Surprise, surprise, the middle way. If we're only around unskillful people, whatever that means, I mean, even that's like such a solidifying of of identification for somebody. But if we're always around people who are primarily unskillful and we don't have any reflection of anything else, then our worldview starts to shift to that. I think it's pointing more to that and less about, oh, you're being unskillful, I need to avoid, avoid, avoid. I think it's that's when the other enlightenment factors come in. Does that resonate for you? It totally resonates, yeah. and um, that's how I found myself here. As I was um, in a group of hedonistic artists, wild, crazy, you know, on the edge of life all the time, and and yeah. I was like forty two, going, "What am I doing? This is like suffering. I'm I'm so much pain. It feels so empty and meaningless." And you know, I, I found my way here, mm-hmm. and um, I went on a you know long retreat. And when I came back from that retreat, I just I I left. I disappeared from that whole group of people. I was—I didn't know anybody. I had no friends. I kind of mm. isolated for about a year and meditated and read and mm. came here Thursday nights. Didn't talk to anybody for a year or two or <laughs> a wow. long time. But wow. um, I had to just shift from one extreme to the other. And now I, you know, welcome these people. Kind of miss them. You know, they're a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but, um, but I had to do that, and I'm so much happier. But I still feel this struggle with who am I and that that lingers you know that old self it's just yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway yeah and there's the external process that you've moved through with so much integrity and then there's an the internal process am I holding them out of my heart just now how about just now how and, and I, I hear that too and what you're saying it's like oh you know I had to push them away and I feel them in your heart now, and you know, it's this process. I mean, that's why so many of these enlightenment factors, I said, hey, it's body and mind, body and mind. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Anybody else? If I was going to create meaning out of the pregnant silence, I would say, oh, it means that, that you're all enlightened. You got it. <laughs> so that's my meaning-making mind. You got your own. <laughs> How about one more? Hi, thank you for your talk. And um, I guess this is just sort of along the lines of the last person's share, which I just, when we were talking about that same thing, which is hanging out with people who are skilled or more skilled, I couldn't help but also sort of thinking that um, part of another community that I'm involved with, a big important part is to hang out with people who are not doing well. Um, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, who are not doing well, and in fact, that's where some of the, that's where a lot of the healing happens in yeah. that process. And so, that's just what it made. I kept thinking on that because, mm-hmm. and I was thinking like, well, how does that work? Uh, you know, hang out with people who are, and helping, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a lot about compassion and learning compassion, but it's also about um, that. What I've discovered is if you're in the process of being engaged with somebody who you're trying to either maybe pass along something or help them out, is how much it solidifies a lot of skillful means in the person doing that. So you're getting compassion and you're solidifying your skillful means and you're, you know, there's a lot of good things, which is not to say that I don't, I agree with hanging out with folks who are more skilled, but I also was going to put it, I couldn't help but think about that. Yeah, yeah, no, this is becoming the catalyst that we're weaving all these factors together, because it's like, wise effort isn't uh, straightforward. It's like, oh, yeah, there's something unskillful going on right here, I'm bringing the skillful to it, you know, tremendous amount of equanimity to have the appropriate response and not get sucked in and drowned in it, you know, so then they all start to light up. And yeah, I'll be honest, the reason I brought in those two pieces with, uh, with joy and with uh, tranquility from the commentaries is because I actually thought that they would be catalysts for deeper thought. You know? And it's why I didn't retranslate them into more user-friendly modern English. It's like, you know, let's take a look at this and see like, how it helps us go deeper, both of you. You know, really, 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 really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. And then we will close. Just want to say that uh, people who avoid hanging out with unskillful people um, are unskillful, and we shouldn't hang out with them. <laughs> That's a great place to end. <laughs> I know. As soon as we throw impermanence <laughs> into it, it's like, so you can't be skillful or unskillful. It's just happening, ebbing and flowing. It's like, oh, maybe I was unskillful with my speech, but the body action was fairly skillful, and it just keeps going on and on and on. Or I sounded really good, but you wouldn't believe what I was thinking. That. Yeah. So let's take a moment to celebrate. Yeah. 
skillfulness and inclusion and transformation of unskillfulness, our own basic goodness. We're going to send wishes to ourselves and to this community and to the wider communities outside. What would the wishes be? And maybe a few people could just call them out. What does the world need right now? So for all the qualities that we named and all the qualities unnamed in our hearts, they ride out on the wings of our intentions in this moment. May they manifest as fully as possible in our future words and actions. And may all beings, not one left out, benefit 